There are more than 344,000 clinical trials in the United States and in more than 20 other countries. These clinical trials are all different, but they have one goal in common, to be as productive as they can possibly be. Welcome to CTO, the Clinical Trial Optimization Podcast. CTO is a twice-monthly podcast that brings together clinical research stakeholders to exchange ideas, share knowledge, and think creatively about how to oversee, manage, and optimize clinical trial planning and execution. The podcast includes discussions with clinical research industry thought leaders and practitioners about how the industry is transforming clinical research design and operations to speed up the delivery of life-changing therapies. I'm your host, Linda Sullivan, and I want to thank you for joining me on this exciting journey to raise the bar on clinical trials and provide an interactive forum for discussing what we do professionally every day of our lives. As you listen right now, you're part of podcast history because this is the very first episode of CTO, the first of what we hope will become a regular part of your podcast listening schedule, a podcast that you'll subscribe to so you'll automatically get every episode on your favorite podcast platform. And for our inaugural episode, we're very excited to have with us someone who embodies the mission of CTO of this podcast, making life science companies better at what they do, and yes, pivoting to today's unique and unprecedented demands. Let me introduce you to Lori Halloran. Lori founded Halloran Consulting Group in 1998, originally operating out of a, wait for it, unfinished bathroom. Hey, you got to start somewhere, right? She spent time working at two startup biotechs who were caught unprepared as they moved into the development phase. Sound familiar? But for Lori, it inspired her to start a company that helps move new therapies through the sometimes complicated FDA processes to get them into the hands of patients desperately in need. Her plan? By providing a strategic development team, innovative startup companies could have access to world-class expertise at a fraction of the cost. Since its humble beginnings, Halloran has grown into a leading consultancy of like-minded experts who are dedicated to improving human health by making life science companies, as we said, better at what they do. Welcome to CTO, Lori. Thank you, Linda. I think everybody wants to know right now, how long did you have to operate out of that bathroom? Oh, (laughs) uh, it was several years. And then I moved down to my basement. And then I... uh, decided that maybe I wanted to be in an office because nobody was ever going to finish the half bathroom or the basement. So we moved next door to an apartment Um, and we called it our European style office, which worked quite well for a few years. (laughs) Ah. Well, let's fast forward to today. I've I've been to your, you now have an entire building that has your name on it. So you certainly have uh, come far from the days of the bathroom. So tell us about Halloran Consulting. What services does your organization have in terms of the planning and execution of clinical research? And kind of what types of organizations do you work with? Absolutely. Uh, Well, if we go back to what you, how how you described the reason I started the company, I really started it because the company, the second company that I worked at, the biotech, I came in at phase three And there were just so many things that should have been put in place and decisions that should have been made based on experience, um, not necessarily on science, that I thought if you had a really seasoned team of drug developers, and that's 
developers, it's not scientists, you would probably avoid a lot of them, those mistakes. So what we actually do is we provide an entire development team on demand. And what that often means is that a company can come along um, to us and often they're sent by their board or their law firm or somebody else who really gets that they're they're missing some key expertise. And we fill in whatever gaps they have. Um, a lot of times it's regulatory, so it's a, often it's a regulatory strategy to help them define how much they're going to need to raise. And then it's regulatory execution to get them to an IND. And along the way, you need quality and you need clinical, both research and operations. Sometimes you need manufacturing. Sometimes you need CMC regulatory. All of those different components that you would find in a big company, we provide um, a person who's got probably 20 of 20 years of expertise for as much as the company needs no more and in that respect we can get the company a lot further often to where they have really good proof of concept data without hiring a, a large team of people which serves the companies really well because they're spending a lot less money and they're making decisions based on the product not based on how much everything costs well, I know talking to other folks that work with um, small biotech, sometimes the challenge is, you know, helping them understand what they don't know. And so trying to convince them that quality is important is often something that I hear folks uh, say, boy, until they go through a, an inspection, they don't Absolutely. realize that these things are important. Absolutely. So I'm, sure, I'm sure you run into that, uh, that quite a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. And and there's a, you know, a lot of it comes from the the founders of the company and what their background is. Um, if they've really been heavily involved in science and they haven't necessarily been in a in a company that had products that went through FDA scrutiny or FDA inspections, they don't understand how important it is to have the quality put in place from the very beginning. Often it's easier to build it rather than fix it. And it's a heck of a lot less expensive. So we try to get them to put just enough in place so that everybody's um, moving in the same direction and they're they're documenting and making decisions based on what the overall scrutiny will be by the regulatory authorities, not what the today's mood is. Well, I imagine even if the strategy is to to sell the compound, um, to only get it through a certain stage and sell it so that you don't have to be the one that goes through the phase three in the marketing. I imagine these are still important concepts. Yes, because regardless of how far you're taking the product, you're better off knowing that the, the protocols and the um, all of the study documents and all of the activities were done to a high standard. Because if it's not done to a high standard, it's less likely to be able to be, be shown to be effective and safe. Um, and if it is effective and safe, someone else might want to come along, whether it's a regulatory agency or whether it's a potential buyer or partner, someone else will come along that wants to look at that data and know that it was done to that high standard. And that's the standard that we all have to live with. So often, a lot of times, early stage company executives don't recognize that because they haven't lived through it and they haven't failed at it. So we're we're really there to try to help them learn from other people's mistakes so that they can make good decisions about what to do with their science and with their money. So where do you get the people that work for you? Did they all come out of, they've, they've yeah. been in those people's shoes, essentially? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what we say. We've been in your shoes. 
the majority of our employees, unless they're a, you know, a brand new person that's kind of in a, in a support role, have worked in a biotech company or in a medical device company or in a pharmaceutical company. Um, many times people come to us because they like the idea of being able to work on a variety of programs. In, in any one small company, they may only have one or two products or programs that are even being developed. And this way, they get a very broad spectrum of uh, different science and different pathways and different ultimate end goals and different business models. So it's, a, it's an attractive place for people to come and work to really do what they are most interested in doing. Well, and I imagine in addition to the people and their background, I mean, surely some of these smaller organizations don't have the, the technology um, available. Are you able to help them in that area as well? If by technology, you mean, you know, the support for um, the clinical program? Absolutely. Yes. Um, we, we've been growing an organi- a, a group that we're calling Organizational Solutions. It's not the, the most perfect name, but because of the situation that we're finding ourselves in with COVID, we've gone almost immediately to the need to do almost everything virtual. And we had a team of folks that were trying to help companies adopt technology when it made sense. So to bring in the right supportive tools, we call them solutions, whether it's electronic data capture or ETMF, which is pretty much what everybody knows about. But there are there's so much that's evolved and so much more sophisticated solutions in place that will enable companies to do efficient and effective work without necessarily all the paper and all the flying around. Um, so that group in the company has, in my company, has gotten really active um, during the COVID time because companies need to figure out ways to get to the patients and, and get the data without flying around as we've needed to in the past. Well, let's continue along that, that topic. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted everybody. Clients are, are having difficulty with patients not being able to get to their, their visits, et cetera. In general, what are the things that your clients have been facing and, and what are some ways that you're helping them address those concerns? They're really suffering in two ways. Um, in mid-March, um, without any notice, um, I, th- I think the whole country recognized that people had to stay in place and they couldn't, they couldn't go anywhere or do anything that involved um, being exposed to um, public or hospitals or doctor's offices or public transportation. So we quickly realized that any clinical trial that was already up and running was going to have a very difficult time enrolling patients. So there was a, a, a very immediate recognition by the part of um, our both our clients and our community that we had to figure out ways to be remote and virtual. We actually started having town halls the first week that everything in Massachusetts was shut down. And we had 175 people show up and try to figure out how to collectively do this together, which was pretty interesting. Um, People were immediately going to telehealth, to remote monitoring, to um, considering whether or not they could identify another physician who wasn't in a COVID facility who could potentially see the subjects or the patients, figuring out how to get nurses to go and do home health visits, how to get patients to go to laboratories and get their blood work done there, um, shipping in their investigational product and trying to do some orientation over the phone to get 
the patients comfortable with essentially self-care and and doing telehealth or doing some type of remote assessment or having um, a doctor or a, a local nurse tra- traveling nurse do it. So it was it was a scramble. I mean, it actually seems like a long time ago now, but it was an unbelievable scramble to try to get that um, dealt with and to make decisions a bit on the fly about was something critical, was an assessment, was a visit, was a blood draw, was a, an EKG or you name it, anything that was in a protocol, was it critical? Or could it be managed and skipped for the better ultimate result of patient health to, to not expose the patients in the studies to potential infection? So it was a crazy time. It's calmed down a lot, um, but it's still, you know, there's still a fair amount of um, a need to try to minimize the exposure of patients when necessary. Yeah, we, we had some similar things going on within the MCC, and we had a weekly open line meeting, and it was very interesting now to look back at how the discussions progressed um, in terms mm-hmm. of um, what were some of the initial things, and then how did we sort of move into other things, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the, the concept of, of putting remote monitoring in place or telehealth, they sounded, you know, pretty straightforward, but the reality of implementing them was very different. And we certainly saw lots of questions around, you know, what do we have to report to regulators? Do we have to get this approved before we do this and that? And it, it was very helpful to have uh, your colleagues on the phone with you. First of all, it was reassuring that you weren't the only one uh, having, mm-hmm. <laughs> having these challenges, but also just sort of learning from each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the biggest thing that our clients and our colleagues were concerned about was the patient's safety. And did it make more sense to tell them to skip a visit or modify procedures than to go and potentially risk getting COVID? So it all really came down to that. Um, And very quickly, a lot of our colleagues on these town halls were trying to find ways to standardize the way they were measuring risk and documenting risk. Because the the mindset and the thought was, if we don't start to systematically capture what we're doing in real time to mitigate the risks and to make the decisions about patient safety, we won't ever be able to go back and capture that later. So I still remember our first town hall was who has a playbook for getting through this and can you share it and how should we be capturing on all of our programs what we're doing and the decision making that's going into it so that we're able to to go back and recollect and reconstruct years down the road when our product might be getting scrutinized by a regulatory authority. That was like the initial gasp. Um, And then we, we moved into, because we found that a lot of the research institutions were very willing to try to work and open to, to thinking a little bit out of the box. Can we do this remotely? Can monitors get access to the electronic health records remotely? And the, the uh, institutions that already had electronic health records and were already uh, allowing the monitors to go in and have access, it's really only one step further to have, have access from home versus access within the building. 
So it really started to kind of make people think, wow, we don't really need to do this this way. There are many more simple ways that we can do it. I had some conversations with physicians, probably mid to late April, who said, I don't think we'll ever go back to seeing all of our patients in person. The patients are so happy to have a 15-minute phone visit where I can see them by video and they can show me whatever they need to and they can get on a scale and they can take their temperature and they might not be great at taking their um, their blood pressure, but we can figure out how to make that work so that I think the, the mindset shift was not only in clinical research, it was in, in actual clinical care as well. So it's been really interesting to be part of this. I want to get back to that point in just a minute, but we're going to take a short break right now to tell you about the upcoming MCC Clinical Trial Risk and Performance Management Virtual Summit. If you've enjoyed this discussion so far, please join us at the MCC Clinical Trial Risk and Performance Management Virtual Summit taking place September 8 through 10, 2020. We've taken our successful face-to-face summit format and completely retooled it to deliver a unique, engaging, interactive multimedia experience. Beginning on August 25th, you'll have access to pre-recorded case study presentations about quality by design and RBQM topics like protocol operational complexity, risk management during COVID, RBM monitoring metrics, monitoring virtual and remote trials, and much more. Additionally, industry experts will share insights about vendor oversight and site oversight, including how to select the right metrics for your CRO, what quality metrics your organization should review, and using risk-based approaches to select sites for restarting trials and conducting site audits. Once you've viewed those sessions, beginning on September 8th, you'll be moving into the three-day virtual live portion of the summit. Keynote speaker, Dr. Jean Melinda, Senior Policy Advisor for the Division of Clinical Compliance Evaluation in the Office of Scientific Investigation, CEDAR FDA, will join us to discuss whether adoption of QBD and RBQM approaches are improving clinical trial quality. Next, you and your participants will gather in virtual breakout rooms to meet with those pre-recorded session speakers and engage in facilitated community discussions about various risk and performance management topics. And some participants will opt to take it to the next level, to roll up their sleeves and join a virtual working group to build a solution during the summit. Participants will prep for the work group by viewing a select number of the pre-recorded presentations and gather information prior to the live session. Topics to be explored in this format include centralized monitoring KRIs and QTLs, what do you measure and what's useful, reassessing risk during study conduct, when, why, how to define and estimate IT system benefits before selection, and what are the most important questions your organization seeks answers to about vendor performance. And finally, for those of you who have participated in the summit in the past, let me reassure you that the data analytics team exercise, aka the follow the data trail competition, will be run at the virtual summit. So don't miss this opportunity to participate in this unique event. It's time to meet your peers, collaborate, share ideas, and think. To register for the summit, visit www.mcc-summit.com. I want to make sure you got that. It's www.mcc-summit.com. And here's the kicker. If you subscribe to this podcast, 
Remember, it's free. You just have to click on submit. You can receive, use a discount code of POD15 to receive 15% off your registration fee. That's right. Just subscribe and enter the code POD15 and you will receive a 15% discount on registration. So getting back to that point that you mentioned, Lori, about how maybe uh, there, there are some lessons learned from this COVID experience um, that are really going to have a long-term impact um, on how we plan and execute clinical trials. And as you said, just maybe in general with, with uh, delivering healthcare. You want to expand on that a yeah. little bit? Sure. Happy to. Well, we've, and we've actually, you know, we're really not out of it yet. Um, we're still, there's been an ineffective um, recognition that we should have stayed in sheltering in place a little bit longer. But what we've started to have is a number of clients who have been thinking about the need to make these more resilient, to make the trials more resilient, coming to us and saying, what can we do? We don't really know how to do an e-health, uh, you know, uh, e-consent and um, electronic um, um, source documentation and we don't really want to expose our patients because they won't even enroll if they think they're going to have to go out and the, and the COVID situation gets worse. So how can we look at our protocol and how can we make it um, pandemic proof, if you will? <laughs> and it really starts with that, um, where you're looking at the actual protocol and you're, and you're saying, do we absolutely need this visit to be in person? Is there technology that we could get into the into the patient's home where they could do the assessment and they could collect the data and and transmit it electronically without ever needing to go out? So we've actually had in very in-depth conversations to try to do that resilient clinical trial methodology. And, and to be really frank, the technology's out there. It's just that there hasn't been an enormous amount of will or a, a major impetus to make it happen. So it's really interesting because also it's coming from the sea level. Um, in a lot of situations, the head of development isn't the one who's pushing for it. It's the CEO or the chief medical officer. That's very interesting. Uh, we, we've certainly heard within the discussions at MCC that some of the you know, organizations, for example, that already had centralized monitoring in place were well positioned mm -hmm to be able to look at what was going on with their trials and, and better able to identify when they had gaps of critical assessment data than those who didn't. Mm -hmm. And we've certainly seen uh, some of those late adopters suddenly accelerating the adoption that, that an idea that wasn't really acceptable or was viewed as being expensive or somehow risky suddenly is it becomes a must-have service. Have, did you... Mm -hmm. Have that experience with some of your clients? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, and and looking at this, and this was something that I've been looking at for quite a while, but it was it was very hard to get companies to start. Um, and in the situations where they have started, and they, you're right, they were well insulated from the interruptions and the and the ultimate harm that probably will come to the development, um, the development stage candidate. They, they envisioned a way to collect the data without human intervention. So if you think of it, um, it, we already have all of the technology. 
So the patient goes in, their doctor does the assessments and records it. In, in my situation, my doctor um, dictates into the medical record. In reality, that dictation, those data that goes into the medical record is, is ultimately transferable all the way to the electronic, not the case report form, but the, the final clinical database. It's transferable. There are ways that that can be built. And so we started to have conversations with some of the leaders in this space to say, what did you do to put this in place? And it's the technology is all there. It's really not that difficult. You just have to have the will and you have to be able to push the teams to overcome the resistance to change. And that's still where we're finding ourselves trying to be a champion to help the clients who are interested in doing this. The support is not it's not not existent from the top. It's absolutely existing from the top. But it's to, to get the, the willingness to think differently and to embrace something that they haven't done before because they haven't done it before and they haven't envisioned it. So it's really been interesting. Um, it's multiple conversations at numerous levels within the, within the biotech company. Ultimately, there's no, you can't define a risk that you can't overcome. So at, at a certain point in time, anybody, everybody's going to have to do it. Um, and we're looking at this as the time. Do you see any difference in that attitude towards risk and change? Um, if you've only got one or two molecules versus you've got a big portfolio, you can try it out on one. Uh, is there any difference in the way different size organizations sort of view this? Oh, that's an interesting question because I, I think big pharma has been has been spending more time doing this because they often have a team of people whose job it is to do this and they don't do anything else but this. So you would think that it would be easy, but it's it's actually not any more easy than in a small company. The, the big company has the people and the money, but they have a much more risk-averse culture in a lot of situations. A small company doesn't have the people or the money, but they don't have the ability to have one of their products dead in the water because you can't, they can't see the patients. So they're willing to take the risk and make measured attempts to evaluate and mitigate and document because the data, once it's collected, it's there. It's not like you lose it if you've collected it electronically and transitioned it electronically. It's still in the medical record. So it's, it's that mindset that I've found really interesting. I mean, the, the example that I keep thinking of is, is looking at how to COVID-proof their phase one study, because if they can't get it done, they won't be able to probably stay in business. And it, the risk is, couldn't be higher but they're choosing to go this way because the risk of not being able to enroll the patients is bigger. So I would, I would challenge anyone in any organization to look at that and say, gee, that's not, that's too high of a risk. We have, we have more because they don't, there's no way. My experience has been, you know, prior to COVID in general, smaller organizations seem to be less interested with, now there's exceptions in, in doing things differently because they perceive it as risky. Well, and so you know, it's interesting COVID because COVID has maybe flipped this on, you know, on its head. So well, yes and no, because I think 
um, we had a we had a um, a virtual breakfast a couple of weeks ago, and we had forty five people, and we did a poll in the during the breakfast, and one of the questions cleverly asked was, "What is keeping you from doing this?" And the largest group of answers was, "We don't know where to start." Oh, so I actually think that it's that. Um, I think that that people are not they're not not interested. It's just such a very big thing if you don't have the technical knowledge. If you think about it, there are so many technology-supported vendors out there. How do you pick the right ones? That's the challenge. And, and where do you start? So that's what we're trying to help companies think about is where, where can you start? Because we know exactly where you can, we can start to have the conversations. That's a really good point. I actually had a very similar conversation recently, and we have somebody that's going to kind of talk about at the summit, sort of, you know, the the, the things to look out for when you're going to uh, go out and get an IT vendor um, mm-hmm. to make sure as people are, are going out there that they, A, they fully understand what they value, what their expectations are, and B, make sure they get the right partner. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. we don't always speak the same language with IT, sometimes... There's mm-hmm. miscommunication, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that area. I agree. Yeah. And the interface is somebody who, who, who knows enough about both to be dangerous, where they can evaluate the vendor's qualifications. And, and really, it comes down to their data safety and security um, and, their, and their knowledge of what GCP is. But there's, you know, most of them who have some level of sophistication and have done it, they can do a vendor assessment and they can they can describe what they've put in place without ever taking the risk of using the data. Um, you know, we, we've started to send out um, a vendor self-qualification so that we're looking at what they're putting in the self-qualification to tell us the level of sophistication they have with having done it before. And then we only have to do it once. We don't have to do it when every single client wants to evaluate the vendor. Very good. Well, in closing, are there any other comments in general that you'd like to make? It sounds like we, as you said, we're, we're still in the midst of COVID, but we're sort of getting into that stage where people are settled down a little bit, starting to do some restart or keep things running. Um, uh, any, any other thoughts you want to share in, in closing here about where we're going, what we're likely to see in the say, future? Yeah, I would say never waste a good crisis. We still don't know when we're going to be coming out of this. Um, I heard from someone today who really understands the vaccine space. The vaccine is not a panacea, and there's no guarantee that any of the vaccines that are in current trials will actually work or be safe enough to use broadly. So I would say we're not out. We're nowhere near out of the woods yet. (laughs) And don't waste this. Don't waste this opportunity because you will not encounter resistance on the part of your executives to making this more resilient to, to, you know, COVID proofing your clinical development program. So um, don't feel like you've already missed the boat if you haven't started. Great. Those are great parting words. Thank you. I want to thank our guest, Lori Halloran, for getting us started so magnificently. And to let you know that our next guest in the podcast will be the incomparable Ken Getz. So you'll want to subscribe in order to get that episode automatically. I want to thank our producer, Michael Levin Epstein. And finally, we want to hear from you. 
rate us on iTunes. Are there topics we should be discussing? Guests we absolutely have to have on the show? Let us know by emailing us at lsullivan at metricschampion.org. This is Linda Sullivan, and we'll see you next time on CTO, the Clinical Trial Optimization Podcast. Thank you.